Welcome to Leading from Behind, a podcast series about the practice of solution-focused therapy, produced by the Halifax Brief Therapy Center. I'm Barry McClatchy, and this is episode number two, The Assumptions and Beliefs in Solution-Focused Practice. Well, thanks again for joining us here on the second episode of Leading from Behind. In this episode, we'll be examining the essential assumptions and beliefs that lie at the heart of solution-focused therapy. In closing the episode, we will once again identify some useful resources for learning more about solution-focused practice. Now, just as a reminder, new episodes of Leading from Behind will be available on the 15th and 30th of each month, and you can find the show notes, which include any web links mentioned on the program, at the Halifax Brief Therapy Centre website at hbtc.ca. So, once again, welcome to Leading from Behind. We hope you'll find this episode useful. During a well-conducted solution-focused therapy session, just about every question and formulation used by the therapist will be consistent with the assumptions and beliefs about people, problems, and change that serve as the underlying basis of solution-focused practice. So in this segment of the podcast, we're going to look at these assumptions as well as three basic principles that guide the work of the solution-focused therapist. Keep in mind that we'll be coming back to these in future episodes as we examine the approach in first and follow-up sessions. Also, it's important to note that there are always some variations in how these assumptions and principles are articulated, so our descriptions here are by no means definitive. Now, the assumptions and beliefs that support solution-focused therapy can be divided into four distinct areas. How we view our clients, how we regard problems, how we understand the concept of solutions, and finally, how we view the idea of change. So within each of these areas, we're going to identify two particular assumptions and beliefs. We'll begin then with looking at our assumptions and beliefs about people. First, solution-focused therapy assumes that all people have expertise about their own lives. We see them as having knowledge about what's important to them, what they value, and what they want for themselves. They have strengths, skills, and resilience, often in the face of challenging circumstances. Secondly, solution-focused therapy takes the position that all of our clients have motivation for something, even if it's not readily apparent or clearly identified. It's our role as practitioners to discover what clients want from our work together, as well as locating the most useful way of respectful collaboration in pursuit of what they want. In this way, there's no such thing as resistance on the part of the client in solution-focused practice. We assume that clients have their own good reasons for doing or even not doing something. The second area where solution-focused therapy holds specific assumptions and beliefs is about the notion of problems. In stark contrast to problem-focused approaches, solution-focused therapy holds the assumption that a complex understanding of problems, such as their causes, origins, or symptoms, isn't necessary in order for clients to find change in their lives. Not surprisingly, then, solution-focused therapy doesn't view the notion of pathology as being a useful aspect of therapeutic conversations. Secondly, solution-focused therapy holds the belief that problems don't happen all the time. There are always exceptions, times when the problem doesn't occur or isn't as significant, and something else is happening instead. 
Within these exceptions, we take the position that sometimes clients are already doing things that might be useful to do more often. Now, the third area where we hold certain assumptions and beliefs concerns the idea of solutions. And it's important to note here that solutions in solution-focused practice are not simply viewed as the diametrical opposite to problems. The first assumption here is that there isn't always a direct relationship between problems and solutions. In other words, people's unique solutions may have very little to do with the problems that brought them through the door. Secondly, solution-focused therapy holds the position that the language used in the co-creation of client solutions is different than the language used in the description of the client's problems. This distinction is often underlined when we examine the presence of and differences between problem talk and solution talk during a therapeutic conversation. It's also observable in the solution-focused therapist's focus on the client's preferred future and the deconstruction of language that enables a clear, achievable, and behavioral description of what clients want. Now, the fourth and final area of assumptions and beliefs is related to the idea of change. Solution-focused therapy holds no particular theory about how change takes place, but instead holds a strong belief that change is constant and inevitable in people's lives. This is particularly evident in follow-up sessions where the therapist begins with the presuppositional question, what's better? Secondly, solution-focused therapists also hold the belief that small change leads to larger change. In fact, one could say that a primary focus in the approach is helping clients find small yet meaningful change. The momentum from such change is often good enough to reduce the need for further sessions. So in summary, we've identified eight key assumptions and beliefs in solution-focused practice. To review, these are as follows. All clients have expertise about their own lives. All clients have motivation for something. An understanding of problems is not required in order to achieve their resolution. Problems don't happen all the time. There are always exceptions. People's unique solutions may have no relationship with their problems. The language used in the description of problems is different than the language used in discussing solutions. Change is constant and inevitable in people's lives. And finally, small changes lead to larger change. Now, there are also three core principles that serve as a guide for therapists in practicing solution-focused therapy. These three principles are as follows. First, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. In other words, we want to focus solely on what's important to our clients. We don't look for or pursue anything other than our collaboration with clients regarding their best hopes for our work together. Second, if it's working, keep doing it. Our focus as therapists is to amplify and reinforce what clients are doing that's helpful and useful. At the same time, we also want to pay close attention to what we're doing as the therapist that seems to be working, and then, quite simply, do more of that. Third, if it's not working, stop doing it and do something different. When clients describe actions or behaviors that aren't working for them, we maintain our focus on inviting descriptions of what instead. This also holds true for the therapist. If something's not working in how we attempt to collaborate with our clients, we need to stop doing it and quite simply do something different. So in closing, we've taken a brief look at the assumptions and beliefs and principles that form the basis of solution-focused practice. Now, it's important to note that these assumptions about clients, change, problems, and solutions are applicable to every client, including children and adolescents, that we encounter. 
To be an effective solution-focused practitioner, we need to hold these assumptions in a very authentic manner and demonstrate them in our conversations with clients. For this reason, we think it's important to view solution-focused therapy as an approach that can't be easily merged with other approaches, nor used selectively by the therapist according to the presenting client or presenting problem. Merging elements of solution-focused therapy into other approaches that don't share these beliefs would, in our opinion, suggest that the practitioner sees the assumptions and beliefs as disposable, rather than a philosophy of sorts in how we respectfully engage others in helpful conversations. Once again, we'll close this episode by providing a few resources for those with an interest in learning more about solution-focused practice. Again, to view the web links for each resource mentioned, please see the show notes for this episode or visit the Leading From Behind podcast page at our website at hbtc.ca. Now, our first link in this episode concerns the work of Harry Corman, a Swedish practitioner who has been involved for many years and in a number of ways in the ongoing development of solution-focused practice. His organization's website can be found at sikt.nu. Harry Corman is also the administrator of the Solution-Focused Listserv, an international online discussion group that attracts people from all over the world who have an interest in solution-focused practice. The Listserv can be an excellent place for newcomers to learn more about the approach, as well as a resource for connecting with individuals who work in similar helping environments. Instructions for joining the Listserv can be found at the website, again at sikt.nu. We'd also recommend a visit to the Brief website at brief.org.uk. In addition to being one of the largest training centers for solution-focused therapy in the world, the Brief site is also a great place for ongoing articles and commentary about the approach. The founders of Brief have also written a number of excellent books about the approach, and these can be found, of course, at their site. Finally, if you're in Australia, you should be aware of the Brief Therapy Institute of Sydney, found at brieftherapysydney.com.au. They provide training in solution-focused practice, as well as numerous links and other information relating to the approach. So we've reached the end of this episode, and I'd like to thank you again for joining us. In Episode 3, we'll provide a broad overview of the key elements of solution-focused practice. Once again, you can access the show notes and web links from this episode at the Halifax Brief Therapy Center's website at hbtc.ca. If this episode has been useful or there's something you think we could do differently in a future one, we'd certainly appreciate your feedback as well as if you have questions about solution-focused practice, we'd be happy to respond or put you in contact with a local resource. Or if you would like us to mention an organization, book, or upcoming training opportunity relating to solution-focused practice, again, feel free to let us know. To contact the Leading From Behind podcast, simply send an email to feedback at hbtc.ca or visit the podcast page at our website at hbtc.ca. In closing, our thanks once again to Dano at danosongs.com, provider of royalty-free music used under Creative Commons license. The music used in this episode is entitled Seven Skies. So you've been listening to Leading From Behind, episode number two. I'm Barry McClatchy from the Halifax Brief Therapy Centre. I certainly hope you'll join us again. 